Hi, this is Steve Hargadon. It is Friday, August 3rd. This is the third and final day of our kickoff for Connected Educator Month. Uh, we're delighted to have Connie Yao with us. Uh, this is our morning keynote. Uh, thanks to Karen Cater, to the Office of the Department of Ed and the Office of Educational Technology, and to all who have participated so far. This has really been a lot of fun. If you haven't signed up for the newsletter for Connected Educator Month, you can do so at ConnectedEducatorMonth.org. You'll get lots of information. Even though the kickoff ends today, there's so much more coming up in the month of August. We hope you'll join us for some more fun activities. So I'm going to turn the time over now to Connie. Connie, I will turn my video off, but I am here for you, and let me know what I can do to help. Okay, thanks, Steve. Good morning, everybody. It's uh, great to be here. I uh, am very appreciative of the opportunity to have an interaction and to speak with you all. Uh, and I uh, am truly appreciative of Steve and the work that all the folks at Connected Educator are doing. I think this is a wonderful way to start the back-to-school season, and I'm, I'm just really happy to be a part of this month. And I love seeing all the good mornings coming up in the chat, so thanks for responding. I, uh, I greatly appreciate that. I thought that I would start, and I do have a PowerPoint, so I'm going to take folks through uh, a PowerPoint. Uh, having an, an hour and a half as a, as a keynote is a, is a little bit daunting. So my goal is to give you some background about what we've been up to at MacArthur and what we've been learning over the last few years. Uh, and hopefully we can get into a little bit of a chat and a conversation and uh, as much as possible in a webinar uh, back and forth. So I'm going to try to give you some background and some things that we've been learning, and then hopefully uh, throughout the PowerPoint, uh, open it up for feedback and response and conversation. So let me start just by giving you a little bit of feedback, a little bit of background on MacArthur and on me before I jump into what we've been learning. So quickly, on MacArthur, for folks that don't know MacArthur, uh, we actually are a fairly large foundation. We have a $5.5 billion endowment. We give out about $240 million annually, uh, and although we're best known for our funding of NPR, uh, for those of you who here in the morning when you're driving to work, funded by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, that's us, uh, and also our Genius Awards that come out generally in September. But we also uh, give out internationally and domestically. We give out in juvenile justice. Uh, we give out in housing, community and economic development, and of course, education. Uh, and we have given out, uh, we have funded and supported education since our inception, actually, in 1980. Uh, and a uh, little bit of background on me. I've been at MacArthur. I've been the director of education for 11 years now, which is a very long time to be at a foundation, uh, although I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, prior to being at MacArthur, I've done a whole variety of things, but I think probably most pertinent for today is that for eight years I was an associate professor at the University of Illinois where I taught teacher prep. So I, uh, my background is in developmental psychology and in educational policy. Uh, and so I did uh, research and uh, teaching in the area of uh, teacher prep and taught both elementary and secondary. So uh, I'm thrilled to be here today and to be sharing some of what we've been learning and hopefully I'll be able to learn uh, from you guys as well. So let me tell you a little bit about what we've been up to here at MacArthur over the last five or six years. So when I first started at MacArthur, um, we were let me see, we were involved um, at the time 
we were involved in a uh, in 2000, which is when I started. We were involved in large-scale district reform. We had a 40 million dollar uh, initiative. We were in three districts doing uh, uh, what could be considered fairly traditional school reform uh, in districts. And after about three or four years of doing that work, we witnessed the um, turnover of 11 superintendents. Uh, in three districts, and my board got a little uh, antsy, I would say, and a little concerned and really started to wonder, is this the right use of philanthropic dollars, uh, given the extraordinary turnover in the districts, uh, not seeing a huge amount of improvement, and really wondered if our philanthropic dollars couldn't be used in a better way, and also in a way that could help to think about the future of learning. And so we took a huge step back in 2004 and decided that we wanted to understand better uh, how young people were learning with digital media. And we started the work in 2004, 2005, uh, and we had a couple of premises that we started with, and I think these are important to sort of lay out because they begin to frame how we approach this work. So a couple of things. First, um, we started the work with a set of guiding questions. We did not start the work with a set of outcomes that we were trying to hit. And you're going to hear me, that'll be a theme that sort of goes through most of what I talk about, is uh, the need to step away a little bit uh, if we're going to think about new, reimagining new approaches to learning, the need to step away from outcomes and to explore questions. So that was, that was one of our, the first things that we started with. The second thing, um, and this felt like more than a semantic distinction to us, is that we decided to focus on learning as opposed to having a focus on education. And for us, what that meant was we wanted to be as open as possible to exploring uh, learning anywhere, anytime, in any manifestation that it might take. And more often than not, when, when folks talk about education, they think about primarily and solely what happens inside uh, the school building. And we wanted to be free to be thinking, to explore and to look at learning uh, anywhere and to understand the impact of digital media on learning anywhere. And so we've shifted all of our conversation to talk about learning as opposed to education. Third, we wanted to start with the kids. We really felt that uh, as non-digitally savvy folks, I started this work not even owning a cell phone. Uh, and the work started before Facebook, before MySpace, before the iPhone. Uh, but we really thought that we had an enormous amount that we could learn from the kids who were growing up with the digital media and for whom the digital media uh, was just another tool that they used uh, in their day-to-day -day life as opposed to some exotic thing that they were trying to understand what to do with. Um, so we started off really and we continue to have youth at the center of everything we do and to understand the youth experience before we do anything else. Um, so those were sort of the three core uh, premises that we started our grant making with in 2005. And so we've spent five, six, seven years now really exploring a core set of questions. Um, and what I want to do today is, uh, in many respects, just cut to the chase. We had a phase one of our grant making that was uh, highly exploratory. Uh, we funded research, we funded the um, exploration of new uh, learning environments, uh, and we funded really looking at some of the implications for institutional change. And two years ago, uh, uh, you know, we had several hundred grantees uh, involved in this work that we were supporting. We sort of brought them all together and said, 
we've been at this for a few years now, is there an overarching frame that all of this work across research, across uh, learning environments, and across institutions, a simple frame that uh, could be an umbrella under which all of the learnings that we have could come together that would help guide our work in phase two. And so we've been working on uh, a new frame for how we want to think about our work and the role of digital media and learning uh, for the last year. And so I want to take you through very simply the simplest version of that frame because that will then ground the rest of our, hopefully, our conversation today. So we call this frame connected learning. I keep trying to advance the slides on my computer. Let me, there we go. So we call this frame connected learning. And so let me tell you a little bit about what we mean by connected learning. So Shoot, sorry, my pictures aren't showing up. That's okay. Uh, so when we talk about what connected learning is, uh, what we mean by that is it is an attempt to reimagine learning in a way that begins to bring together and to connect the three areas that we think are most important to a young person's life. That is their peer culture, an area that the, that the young person cares the most about getting better at. That is their interest. And third, their academic sphere. And in doing so, we think when we bring these three things together, we think that we can create multiple entry points to learning for many more kids, and that we can create many more pathways toward career, academic, and civic success. And it sounds really quite simple, but what we found is that it turns out to be incredibly difficult to implement. And so this is what I want to talk about a little bit today. And also in doing this, again, my picture doesn't show up, but that's okay, is that when we bring these three things together, not only are kids learning the traditional skills that come out with the common core that we care about, but that we can, they're also learning what has been commonly uh, in begun to, that we talk about as the 21st century skills, the kinds of creativity, collaboration, uh, critical thinking, problem solving that we know really matter in the 21st century. Um, one quick thing before I talk, give you a little bit more background on this, and you'll uh, soon come to understand why I'm saying this, but I also want to be really clear about what connected learning is not, um, because it, when the media talks about educational technology, uh, we end up having lots of conversations about things like Khan Academy, uh, virtual schools, um, and online courses. That's actually, from all of our research and the work that we've been doing with kids, not what we're talking about. And that's, um, although quite useful and it has its place, that's not the approach to using digital media that we think it's, at the end of the day will be um, the approach to reimagining learning and to really uh, reimagining and making the most out of the new tools that are available to us today. So that's a little bit of background. Um, and that sort of uh, very simply, uh, in a very simple way, uh, where we've been coming to with a lot of our work uh, in the last uh, couple of years. So now what I want to do, if it's okay with folks, uh, and let me know in the chat if uh, it's not okay or if you, if you want to stop or slow down, I want to give you a little bit more background on how we got here which is to say I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about what we've learned from researching and spending time with kids online because it forms the foundation for why we have come to Connected Learning and why and how we think about what's most important about the relationship between digital media and learning. 
so if that's okay. All right, I see a please carry on, so I'm gonna I'm gonna keep going. Thanks, guys. So one of the things when we started this work, um, thanks. I'm, I'm reading the chat. So one of the things when we started this work is I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the kinds of research that is often done uh, to look at kids online, which is what we call media usage studies. And those are the studies that tell us how many hours a day a kid is online. Uh, and often we hear that kids are online seven to eight hours a day. Uh, and when they're multitasking, we could count that as 10 hours a day. Right? Those are the kinds of studies that we often hear. Uh, and, and when we hear that, we panic. We sort of put our hand to our forehead and say, oh my god, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, and this is horrible. What we really wanted to understand, we're concerned much less with the number of hours a day they're online. We're much more concerned with what in the world are they doing? What does it look like? What can we learn from them in terms of, of what that time is that they're, they're spending online? So we commissioned what is still the, and what is, has been the largest ethnographic study, qualitative study, meaning our researchers spent an extraordinary amount of time with kids online, um, watching them, observing them, interviewing them, being online with them, to understand really how are they participating when they're online, what is it that they're doing. So we had 25 researchers over three years with more than 700 kids around the country trying to understand what participation looks like. Um, and our researchers came up with a couple of findings that I want to share with you today. Uh, the first one is they came, they sort of categorized or came up with two genres or types of participation that I think are incredibly important to understand for learning. The first one is the one that you all know. Uh, yeah, I'll get you the URL for the study, uh, which is really important. If John Barillon is on, John, could you put the URL up? I'd really appreciate it. Um, so the first one is the one that you guys all, all know because it's what the media reports on all the time, and that is kids are online being social. We call this friendship-driven participation, and it's what they do on Facebook. Uh, we're talking from middle school through uh, beginning of college. That's the group that we're, we're looking at. Um, and primarily what kids do offline in their social world, it's what they're doing online. There's actually no mystery about what's happening in friendship-driven interactions, what's happening on Facebook. If they're gossiping online, they're gossiping. Uh, if they're gossiping offline, they're gossiping online. If they're looking to find a boyfriend or a girlfriend offline, they're doing it online. If they're bullying offline, they're bullying online. So what some of us of my generation used to do at the mall, the kids are now doing online. And if we were okay with them doing it at the mall, we should be okay with them doing it online. If we weren't okay with what our kids were doing at the mall, then we should be worried about what they're doing online. It's really a pretty simple relationship. The second thing, though, which is, has been fascinating to us, the second type of interaction and participation online, which we almost never hear about, is what our researchers call interest-driven participation. And I'm wondering if in the chat box, if folks who know what fan fiction is um, could just sort of give me a sense of people who know a little bit about what a Harry Potter website looks like or what fan fiction is. Because what we found is completely different from the social interactions and the Facebook kinds of interactions is that hundreds of thousands of kids are online pursuing their interests. And they are actually online trying to get better at something. Uh, and in these, these communities, and Harry Potter is a great example, 
um, now it's Hunger Games or it could be Twilight. So Harry Potter, we like to use Harry Potter because almost everybody has read Harry Potter or at least seen the movie. Hundreds of thousands of kids are, have been online rewriting Harry Potter. These are incredibly structured uh, environments in forums and chats where uh, kids are getting feedback on what they've written. They're creating entirely new characters, entirely new plots. They're learning about what a character is. They're learning about grammar. They're learning both about traditional skills and they're learning to be incredibly creative and they're learning to be in communities. And so uh, anime is huge, chess is huge, science is huge. There's an enormous amount of mentoring. The networks are open, they're hugely collaborative, but you also scaffold and have lots of challenges and competition as well. For those, uh, I'm a, a former Dewey scholar. For those educators uh, on the chat, these are the kinds of learning environments that John Dewey would have drooled over. And, and we have found that, um, I'm going to go back one more second, that hundreds of thousands of kids are involved in these sites. And so uh, we were quite excited about this finding um, and intrigued by it. And so the, the finding actually made us think uh, several things uh, and led to a whole bunch of questions. Um, one of the questions for, uh, for me in particular, but for the researchers, once we got past the, uh, was, uh, the, the, what are you really talking about? Are you serious? Those sites exist and what are kids doing? Um, was how in the world do they find these sites? Right? It's really easy to find out about Facebook or MySpace or some of the others, but how do they find these interest-driven spaces? Um, and it turns out, uh, so we, the researchers did an enormous amount of research on this as well, um, because I, you know, I have two sons, and I have one who's hugely interest-driven, and one who just hangs out on the couch and watches TV. And so it's, so I, I definitely have a very keen interest in, well, how do, how do the kids find, how do they get hooked, how do they find these interests? And so it turns out that in the online community, often what happens is that it's a movement from pure culture into interest that kids are hanging out with each other. And these are the, this is their language. They're hanging out with each other. It could be with a sibling. It could be with friends. And one of them might be online, or they might be talking about what they've done online. And another one says, hey, what is that? What were you doing? And this happens. I've actually seen this in my house. I have a 13-year-old. This is exactly how he finds out about his interest communities online. Friend told me to, to go check it out. So they go online, and they check it out. And they start, in their words, messing around. They start tinkering. They start playing with it. They start just sort of learning what's going on there. And if it's interesting to them, in their words, they go deeper. They go deeper into the community, and they start geeking out. And so this is actually the title of the book that came out on the research, Hanging Out, Messing Around, and Geeking Out. And so the kids um, have really learned. They've both got these sites where they can go deep on their interests and get better at something and learn an enormous, about, an enormous amount about it. And it is a direct connection, an important link between their peer culture and their interests. So the second concern for us, once we really started learning about this and understanding how powerful it is for youth, is that we started getting very concerned about the, the discrepancy in many respects between what kids are doing online and how engaging it can be and what we see happening in, in some of our traditional institutions. So. In part, a um, couple of things. We see uh, online, we see this extraordinary connection between peer culture and interests. 
and we see an incredible opportunity online for kids to mess around, for kids to tinker and play while they're hanging out with friends and to figure out what it is that they want to do. Um, and we also know that interests are incredibly important for learning. Um, I don't know if some of you know some of the findings in the STEM research that talk about uh, what uh, Sternberg did some of this research, that what predicts whether or not a young person is going to go into STEM as a career is whether or not science or a STEM-related uh, area is a passion or an interest by the eighth grade. So we know that passion and interest is incredibly important for robust and resilient learning. And so how do we begin? And we now know that peer culture is deeply connected to kids both discovering and maintaining their interests. We did a survey actually here in Chicago, which is where MacArthur is based, to get a sense of how many of the after-school programs in the institutions in Chicago really enable kids just to hang out and to mess around and play. Because if you think about the opportunity to tinker um, and just to play with things and to mess around and also to hang out with your friends, we often, or at least I do, think about this as something that happens in kindergarten or early elementary. And you certainly see it, we allow it to happen at recess. But as kids age up and get to middle school and high school, where are those opportunities for kids to do that? Um, and so we did a survey of all of the after-school programs in Chicago to sort of get a sense of whether or not they allow that, what that culture looks like. And it turns out that between 90 and 95% of the programs uh, that are in operation in a city like Chicago require that kids actually already have a pre-identified interest so that when kids come to the program, they're coming in for a program that it's already set. It's generally only something like the why that really allows kids just to hang out. Um, but then there's not a particular opportunity to mess around with uh, things that might connect to academics or to uh, careers. So we're really learning as we do this work that in our institutions, there's very little opportunity for kids to really um, engage in the connecting peer to interest and to allow that messing around uh, uh, to happen at the same time. So what we wanted to do next was then to say, well, well, how do we begin to bring the best of both worlds together, the best of what we've learned from the online world, and the best of what's in our institutions, both the resources and, of course, the adults? Because we're not seeing a ton of adult interaction in the interest-driven communities. There's lots of mentoring with older peers. But as we know, most of our resources are in our institutions. And so the first place we turned to were libraries. Uh, we have a library here in Chicago. The, the, uh, it's one of the largest physical libraries in the world called the Harold Washington Library. And there was an empty, it turns out, 5,000 square foot space on the first floor. Uh, and the commissioner of the public libraries, Mary Dempsey, had turned to us and said, you know, it's an empty space and no teens come to the public library downtown unless they're forced to by their schools to do a project can you help us redesign the space? And so we took just as a, very, as a first start uh, the hanging out, messing around, and geeking out idea uh, to the library. And we also took the idea of uh, kids as uh, learning as participatory and productive and said, what would the library look like? If we took that and mixed that with what is extraordinary about the public library, what would that begin to look like? Um, and uh, Steve, can you? play the first video. And I want to just, instead of talking about it, I want to show you a video of what it looks like, what one of the activities and what it looks like. Yep. And what you're going to see before you play it, Steve, 
what you're going to see is one of the signature projects of the Chicago Public Library is called One Book, One Chicago, where the entire city reads a book together. Uh, the book at the time was called The Mercy uh, by Toni Morrison, which if any of you read it, is actually a pretty difficult book to read. Uh, and so these are kids, these are public school kids from, uh, from the Chicago Public Schools who are just coming to Umedia. Umedia is downtown. Uh, the Harold Washington Library is downtown, and these are kids coming to uh, voluntarily that just are coming in after school because they like the space, they want to hang out, and this is one of the projects going on at the Harold Washington Library in the space called Umedia. If you could right. play it, it would I'm be I'm going to put it on. And, uh, before I do so, I want to let people know, as the chat's gotten progressively more active, it can be hard to follow in the small space that it's in, and there's a menu a bar at the top of the chat that lets you detach the panel and pull it out, or you can just double click on the top of the chat box and pull it out and enlarge it, and you may uh, find that that's easier to follow the chat. I'm going to cue this video up, and I think you're going to need to press play. It's about four minutes long. I'm going to set the timer. Um, if for some reason you have bandwidth issues or the video doesn't play in full, uh, I am going to put the link in here and you can look at it later. And so here we go. Just go ahead and click play. So I do know that some Connie had trouble uh, either be, being behind a firewall or with bandwidth uh, weren't able to see the full video. I put the link again in the chat and, uh, and definitely please watch it later if you had that problem. Okay. So I do hope that folks that didn't get a chance to watch it will get a chance to watch it. Um, a couple questions that did come up. Uh, Toni Morrison did visit the library and she did see a good portion of what the students created and they're now in her archives for a mercy uh, because the work, uh, the work that came out of that project was just extraordinary, uh, as is uh, the work that, much of the work that the students, or the youth, because they're in that space, they're not students, they're, they're youth collaborating, um, is, is uh, pretty phenomenal. Uh, a couple of things, even for those who didn't get a chance to see the video, and, and I do hope that you do, I, I actually, my favorite clip in that video, I don't know, for those who got to see it, uh, my favorite clip in the video is actually of the student who's holding the book and all of the yellow stickies that are in the book. Uh, because in order to do the creative production, uh, requires that the kids read and reread and reread the book. So not only are, they, are their identities linked to the book, and not only are they doing really great productive work, they know that book. By the end of the projects, they really know the book. Um, and again, it's all voluntary. So one of the things that's uh, extraordinary about Umedia, and we're now funding, we're working with the Institute Museum and Library Services to help scale it up to other libraries and museums, is that on a weekly basis, and remember, it's all voluntary. The kids just come. It's never been advertised in Chicago. It's all word of mouth from the kids. Uh, it uh, gets more than 500 kids a week. 
uh, that come to UMedia, and it turns out to be extraordinarily successful with African-American voice, uh, uh, which has surprised us. Um, the books uh, uh, that come off the shelf, kids check out more books out of that library than are typically checked out of the community branch libraries. Um, and so it's had a 700-fold increase in the number of books that are checked out. Uh, and some of the evaluation research that is now coming out of UMedia also that talks about how kids are really uh, beginning to show changes in their attitudes towards school and in their attitudes towards academic achievement. So it's just a, it's, it's been a really interesting phenomenon because it's really not that, it's really been about taking the best of what the institution has to offer with what we've been learning about what happens online. And so on the slide here, I've got some of the first guiding principles that we've been learning from the UMedia experiment uh, that help, and these are becoming some of our design principles for connected learning. Uh, and the first one, which is so incredibly important, is providing a space where youth have a shared purpose. And we find that it's not just that there's an opportunity for kids to hang out, it's that the kids in that hanging out space begin to have a shared purpose. Uh, and that's often the role you'll see down at the bottom that says mentors create bridges. The mentors in the UMedia space play an extraordinary role in helping kids begin to understand what their interests are, to help kids move from hanging out to messing around, and to understand the movement from messing around to geeking out. So the, the mentors really create extraordinary bridges for kids uh, all along the way and for figuring out how to get better at something. Um, the space is really, uh, we, we often talk about the difference between horizontal communication and vertical communication. So expertise is shared, uh, and it's very much a space for peer-to-peer -peer communication and not a place of top-down expertise. The third thing that is so incredibly important that we just didn't have an understanding of prior to starting this work is how, and, and you all probably know this, but how incredibly important performance is to young people, and that it's performance to their peers, it's not performance to adults. So there's a performance space in UMedia, and every Wednesday there is an opportunity for kids to perform their work or to show it in some way and to get peer feedback. So they're not necessarily looking for adult feedback or expert feedback, they're looking for peers who are a little bit better at what they do to give them feedback on how they're doing. Uh, and it's amazing the time on task that that drives. So every time they know that they are having the opportunity to perform in front of their peers, and they know that they're going to get feedback from their peers, uh, we see both in the online community and in the space, the number of hours they're working on their production go through the roof. Um, and then lastly, I'll just say, uh, UMedia creates uh, an invitation for everyone to participate. So there's just this very, very low bar for participation. Anybody can participate. There then are scaffolded opportunities to get better and better at something, um, but there's always that very low and welcoming bar to participate. And we find that these are uh, some of the design principles from the online community, uh, from the fan fiction sites and from the places that we've studied that we have translated into uh, the physical space of UMedia that has driven extraordinary engagement um, and production from the kids. Uh, so. One of the things that we're going to come back to and that I really want to come back to in this conversation 
is think, and I'm going to show you another example of what this looks like in a school, but to really begin to think about what this means for creating learning experiences for kids. So all of our work, uh, and again, this is a big shift because we part of what we think in our work is that to reimagine learning for the 21st century, it's going to be really important to shift our frames for how we think about what we want to be doing. And so I worry very much about a conversation that starts with the core outcomes about content, uh, which is a little bit about what's happening in the policy arena. Um, I think that cuts down on the possibilities for innovation and imagination. We've started all of our work with a core question of what is the experience we want youth to have? And then from there, figuring out what is the role for content in that, in that experience, what is the role of the adults in that experience, and then what is the role of digital media. So if you look at these design principles, um, you don't need digital media for those design principles. At the same time, digital media makes it so much easier. So these design principles guide us in how we think about what is the role and use of digital media. Um, rather than thinking about uh, efficiency around the use of content, which is often uh, where we start with, uh, with Khan Academy or with some of the online courses, the conversation is so much around the efficiency of uh, sending content out to kids. We much more really want to understand what are the most engaging kinds of experiences that create invitations to learning for kids um, and then what, how do we want to integrate, integrate content into those kinds of experiences and how does digital media facilitate that? Um, and so that's how we've been thinking about how to think about digital media. Um, and it's been a, an extraordinary journey and learning experience for us. And I would love, that's what I'm hoping we can have as part of a conversation. I just have a couple more slides. Uh, I just want to give you a taste of a little bit about Another experiment, because of course we wanted to do this in a library and we're doing this more broadly in libraries, uh, but we also want to think about a little bit what would an experiment around what we've learned from the online world also mean for uh, dramatically rethinking uh, what youth experience, what kids experience in schools can look like. Um, and again, uh, so we've uh, tailored our design principles, the ones I just showed you, because uh, schools are obviously a very different context. So we've tailored some design principles um, that we started with for school. Um, and, tr and again, our goal is to be as simple as possible and that in a way that then allows for the greatest amount of creativity within any kind of context. Um, and so these are some, of, and I'll put this slide back up, but just take a, take a, a look at this. These are some of the design principles uh, the schools called, we've got one in New York and one in Chicago called Quest to Learn. Um, and these are some of the design principles that we started with. The second premise that we started with for schools was that I think it's unbelievably hard, and we did this with the library too, unbelievably hard, and I think about this even in terms of my own parenting, it's unbelievably hard to reimagine what you're doing on your own because you know what you know. and so. Where, how, where do we turn or how do we uh, have help or get catalyzed or inspired with new ideas that allow us to take our strengths 
and what we do best, but perhaps jumpstart it or kick it into the next year. And so we looked to the innovation literature to find out how new ideas move into existing domains. Um, and one of the things that we learned was that new ideas often come from adjacent domains, uh, which is to say, what is in education, what's another kind of profession that is very much like education, but actually thinks very, has a very different task and brings a different set of skills or dispositions and frame to the, to, and sensibilities to uh, a similar kind of context. And what we learned from spending an enormous amount of time in the design space is that actually game design is very similar to curricular development. That game designers go through, in many respects, the same kind of processes that teachers go through when they're trying to engage uh, players in the uh, gameplay. So we actually started thinking about game design as pedagogy. Rather than think about game design as a way of mashing fun on top of content, we really decided to delve deep into games as and game design as pedagogy and wanted to integrate what teachers know with what game designers know to see what could come of that. What would we get out of that? So that we weren't looking to, uh, game designers talk about it as putting chocolate on top of broccoli. We weren't looking to gamify or make content quote unquote fun. We were looking to reimagine um, what curriculum and pedagogy can look like if we bring two extraordinary worlds together. Um, so Steve, can you play the next video? Absolutely. And again, with the same okay. um, right. uh, caveat or advice, if for some reason this doesn't come through for you or you're behind a firewall or there's a bandwidth issue, um, I will put the link in the chat and um, we'll hope you'll look at it later. Um, Connie, I think this is the one where you're just encouraging people to watch the first four minutes, right? Yes. It's a seven-minute video. Just watch the first four minutes to get a sense of it. I would encourage you to go back and watch the rest of it, but I just want you to get a taste rather than have me uh, talk about it. Okay, and so you will need to click play, I think, for most of you to get that video going. Connie, is it okay to stop there? Are folks back? You've got everybody's attention again. Okay. Um, so I have a whole set of questions to ask folks. Um, I'm 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 looking at my notes. I'm wrapping I'm wrapping up, and I'm trying to I'm uh, I'm trying to uh, figure out where I want to jump into questions. But here's what I, here's what I want to say. Um, I want to remind you of our overarching frame, uh, both of, let me get my hands out of in front of the web. Um, we have a, so we have a set of design principles. We have an overarching frame that really talks about the mo ro most robust learning happening when interest, academic, and peer come together. We have the idea about, um, needing to really experiment on how to create 
environments for kids. But I think we have a core, uh, a lot of core challenges that um, that make here's a we have a, 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 an but here's a premise that I want to ask of you and get your feedback on and jump into conversation about. The principles, the, the screen that I have up is from MIT Media Lab. And the screen that I have up are some of the core assumptions about innovation, which is to say, um, and one of the core taglines that innovators, that folks who are reimagining, um, talk about the need to fail fast, fail often, and fail cheaply. Um, and what, and you can see sort of um, some of the core tensions that come about for innovation. I, my, what I, one of the premises or one of the hypotheses in the way that we're doing our work is to say that I think that's really hard to do in the current context for teachers and for practitioners in the current context of schools. Because schools are uh, high stakes environments uh, where uh, it's really hard to take risks. It's hard for kids to take risks and it's hard for um, teachers to take risks. And so I think it's an extraordinary ask of the education community to also be innovating at the same time within the context in which our schools are currently operating. So then that has raised for us the question of how do we begin to think about um, really creating the context in which more of what we've begun to experiment with, which is bringing together the some of the extraordinary things that we've been learning about in the online world and where digital media can actually make a difference, and the extraordinary things that are happening within institutions. Because there are extraordinary things happening uh, in schools already, just like there's extraordinary resources and people in libraries. And the question is, how do we, what is the context? What are the supports? How do we begin to bring those two things together so that it can be a place where there's uh, the opportunity to experiment, which is what uh, our funding and a lot of what has allowed, uh, what allowed Quest to Learn to get going and allowed UMedia and now is allowing it to scale. So I wanna, um, I'm gonna skip this. I wanna um, tell you a little bit about a structure we're creating and get a little bit of feedback from you on uh, whether or not you think this could be useful and even more ideas about how to think about it. Um, because here's my biggest concern. My biggest concern is, uh, and it's a classic, it always happens with technology, is that Web 1.0, uh, always exists with taking what we already know how to do and putting that on top of technology, which is in many respects what's happening uh, in the educational technology world. We take our courses and we put them online. We take what we already know how to do 
and we put it online and we try to make it more efficient. That's all great, and that developmentally is the first thing that happens with technology. I'm worried that we'll stop there um, and not really push to this next level of what does it mean to integrate what we know how to do so well with what these new tools can bring us. And that's really what's so incredibly exciting and what is the opportunity here. And that's uh, what our digital media and learning initiative is about, is really doing that hard, exciting uh, work about getting to that next level of rethinking pedagogy and rethinking uh, really what's the potential for uh, youth student experience and learning and really reimagining learning, taking what you all know so well how to do and uh, catalyzing it with what our new tools enable us to do. So it's not clear to me that that can only happen in schools. Instead, uh, part of what digital media brings to us is a networked world. Um, and in many respects from our research, our kids tell us that uh, they're learning uh, everywhere and they're learning through networks. And so, uh, sorry about that, we've begun to really think in a couple of cities about creating networks of learning. So you all, I'm sure many of you, either in the out-of-school world or in the in-school world, think about individual partnerships between schools and community organizations. Part of what we're trying to do is really think about how to network the informal world in a way that it feels like a network to the youth. So that whether a young person's in a library or online or at a museum, their learning moves with them and they can continue to pursue their interests regardless of where they are and that it's connected. And what we want to do then is to also connect those networks to what's happening in school so that there becomes a seamlessness between in and out of school that is about advancing a young person's interests and connecting peer culture with interest in academics. But here's where um, it could be hugely interesting from the adult perspective, is that part of what we want to really think about is how do you use, I'm going to skip all this, how do you use a connection between in and out of school to create safe spaces for adults to learn? Is part of what I think is really uh, a challenge is that just as we don't have hanging out, messing around, and geeking out spaces for youth, it's not clear to me that we have them for educators. And so part of what um, our next phase uh, in our grant making and in our initiative is, is to really begin to think about how do we create those spaces where the adults who are working with the kids can be hanging out, messing around, and geeking out too, and perhaps also with the youth. It's not clear to me that adults, at the question for you all, does it need to be a space or a set of spaces that are separate from the youth? Um, I like that line, city of school. Yeah, we're thinking about city as a platform for learning. Um, and so part of our question is, can we reimagine, what are the spaces in uh, your, you as educators' lives that could become hanging out, messing around, and geeking out spaces if we reimagine them? And if we thought about them in an innovation flow. So if we, if, we, if we have our design principles right, 
And if we want to think about adjacent worlds to bring in connection with what you're doing, where would that work happen? Well, could it happen in summer school? Could it happen in after school? And what would you, would it happen in your school libraries? And what would you need in order to make that happen? So I have a, a twofold set of questions here. One is this question about what do you need and where can it happen in terms of really pushing on this next phase of innovation for learning or reimagining learning. And then the second question, um, and I should have put it right here, but I didn't, is I really wanted to have a conversation about the design principles and get your feedback on whether or not those design principles make sense to you. Um, and in many respects, if you wanted to add or if you thought they were the right uh, design principles. So I feel like I've talked forever. Steve, and I'm looking for your help. I don't know if you want to have a whiteboard to have people uh, brainstorm or talk a little bit about the, the first question on the hanging out, messing around, and geeking out. But I'd really love to have um, feedback or engagement around that question for for educators, for connected educators. Because really, I want to take that phrase incredibly seriously because we take in the connected learning phrase incredibly seriously for youth and are trying to build an infrastructure that connects youth learning. And I think we very much, yes, I do know uh, the Science Leadership Academy, uh, and I think it's excellent. I really want to think about um, how we build uh, the connected learning opportunities and experiences for educators in ways that mesh with um, the kids. Okay, so Connie, so, I put up a page. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm going to clear the smiley mm -hmm. face, sorry. <laughs> but you can use the text tool to the left. Uh, you'll see a little A with some lines. and You can click on that or click on the A. Uh, itself. You don't actually have to write it out with the drawing pencil. You can actually type it in. But Connie, define that first question again, and we'll let people respond on this page. Okay. So the first question is, where I think that we need to reimagine the spaces and how, where and how, educators are supported in uh, this next phase of we use the phrase reimagining learning. And for us, reimagining learning is really taking what uh, educators are doing so incredibly well and really thinking about what we've learned from our design principles, um, how to integrate it with these sets of design principles. Like we integrated uh, games with uh, teachers. So part of it, and really that comes from allowing educators to hang out, mess around, and geek out with another set of folks who have a different set of expertise. And so part of the question is, uh, how can, I want ideas on how, what are the best ways in which to support that? How can that happen? When can that happen? And where can that happen? So the when is literally when during either your year or your day. Um, because, as you know, uh, educators' lives are incredibly boxed. And so we're looking for where are the inroads. 
and what kinds of supports are needed? Sorry, I wasn't more concise or articulate with that question, Steve. No, I think it, I think people are responding, and there's a lot going on here. Uh, you know, I guess there were questions earlier, and I asked as well. You know, do the ed camps or these online communities of practice are they serving in some ways as grassroots versions of this kind of yep. support? Yep, I think absolutely. Um, and but I I uh, I sometimes want so part of um, for folks who have participated in those, I would also love to hear. Uh, one, I worry about those being fragmented or siloed and how we can create uh, more of a grassroots movement. So how can, uh, what kinds of supports are needed to connect those? And also, are you getting the supports in those that you need? Um, how can we sort of take those things? What's worked and how can we take those to the next level too? Because I think those are wonderful. Connie, one of the questions that keeps coming up in the working group on online communities of practice is, um, do the members of those communities act as the bridges? So are they not as siloed as we think? Right. Is there also a kind right. of grassroots connecting that doesn't necessarily need to come from top down? Yep. Yep. And, and so, uh, and is that just organic? And we sort of let that go. Is there? Um, I'll just say it. You're talking to a funder. Is there? Is there more that can be helped with that? Well, certainly the experience in Chicago with your media would be an argument for the formalizing of the structure and the mm -hmm. space, right? And and yep. and if we think that there are maybe you know somewhere in the range of a few hundred thousand connected educators who are actively participating, mm -hmm. and there are seven point some million educators. That would be an argument for something more formal. Right. So I'm going to give uh, everybody microphone privilege. I actually will do this. If you want to raise your hand to respond in, uh, through audio, please feel free to do so. That's the hand icon in the participant window, and I'll give you uh, audio. We're getting a lot of response both in the chat and on the page. Uh, Connie, yeah, I love um, let me know how you'd like to proceed, but um, we can move some of these around so they're a little easier to read. Um, as a moderator, you can click on any one, and I think you'll you'll be able to see that you can move it to to uh, read okay. it. Okay. And, and will I get these afterwards? This is all being recorded, and we can also save the, okay. the whiteboard page as well. Okay. Um, there's a, a line in the chat that says, "What are the absolute must go to sites for educators who are hungry to learn?" I if I'm assuming with Connected Educator that there's a, a an emerging list of sites. Yes, because I think that would be a huge resource. So if folks are offering those, that would be great. Uh, I run a, a wiki called educationalnetworking.com, which has a yep. list of social networks, yep. and which is a little bit dated now. But the connecteducator.org site also has a list. Okay. Yeah, and if anybody, I I totally agree that I think time is uh, one of the biggest constraints for everybody. That's why we've been trying to think about it in terms of the existing time, whether it's uh, summer school or uh, how do you integrate this into the time that's already there. Connie, how much of this depends on uh, a shift in cultural narrative, whether it's about time teachers have for this kind of development or it's just education as a whole? 
how does this play into thinking about building consensus around those narratives? Yeah, yeah. Um, I am, uh, yeah, for us, uh, um, Yeah, so we're pretty clear that we really have to be building a different narrative uh, for really thinking about uh, learning going forward. And part of it is is simply, um, I I think uh, I would argue that the goals of education broadly that our founding fathers when they set up our educational system totally got it right, and that uh, the broad purposes or goals of education have always been around the preparation of young people for participation in democracy, for participation in a capitalist economy, and for lifelong learning. And those three things um, seem to be right on. What has changed so dramatically uh, in the 21st century is what each of those things mean and how you do it. Um, and so that's one of the frames that I think we really have to interrogate and investigate is what does it mean to be a democratic citizen in the 21st century and, and, how, and how do we prepare our, our young people for that. I think the uh, workplace has changed dramatically and we have to understand that. I think what it means to be a lifelong learner has changed dramatically. And so we now uh, live in a world of constant change where our futures are not guaranteed. And so what it means to be a citizen, a worker, and a learner in a world of constant change requires a very different narrative for learning. The second thing that I think has happened in education in a very dramatic way over the last 50 to 60 years is for whatever reason, uh, the notion of education and who is responsible for education has dramatically narrowed to the school building. So when our, the Founding Fathers created our education, it was never even remotely understood that it would rest solely on school. It was always understood as a configuration of institutions and community that was responsible for this broader notion of education. But for whatever reason, um, and this, there have been a whole set of reasons, in the last half century, it has collapsed on, everything has collapsed onto the school building and in the last 20 years, it has dramatically collapsed onto the teacher, um, which is just an impossibility. It is an absolute impossibility. And so we have uh, narrowed and narrowed and narrowed both the purpose of education and who is responsible for it uh, to make it uh, an impossible task. And it, so I think the narrative um, and framework for education actually needs to go back to what it was from the beginning and within that context needs to then be reimagined. So I, I think, uh, I, so it, it's this interesting thing of sort of going back to the beginning and then having that going back to the beginning create the opportunity to reimagine what's possible. And in that, uh, what, so, what makes this opportunity so exciting with digital media is that digital media fundamentally uh, creates networks and so if we open up the possibility of who is responsible and who is allowed in, to be engaged in the education of our youth and our children, 
and we turn to the resources that are within this networked infrastructure, we could have an extraordinary opportunity uh, to, to uh, educate our, the next generation. We can also take advantage of the extraordinary expertise of our teachers, but also remove what has become, I think, a burden. I think the way in which we organize our schools, the way in which we organize our classrooms creates just an extraordinary burden from teachers. Um, as a, someone who has did teacher prep for eight years, um, the people that go into education are extraordinary. I think we create a context and a setting that makes an almost impossible job. And we have to reconfigure that job. Connie, are you, are you suggesting that um, we would create good spaces for adults, teachers, to kind of experience this um, confluence of, of learning opportunities, that that's a part of that uh, change, uh, that, that they'll help kind of rebuild that narrative? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I'm going to say something that uh, here's one of the things that I think has to change and will change dramatically, and I think it will ultimately lead to uh, much better lives for teachers. Um, and I'm curious if people, how people think about this. Um, one of the things that uh, the, a tool, the tools of digital media enable is participation. And, and in the vernacular of technology and digital media, we talk about this as the shift from, and it, it, this has fundamentally changed journalism, the shift from one to many to many to many. And what that means is uh, in journalism, you think about broadcast news. Um, and so in broadcast news, we had Walter Conkright who would sit there and tell us the news, and it was one man broadcasting out to millions, and he was our expert. And now with Facebook and Twitter and all of the things that we have online, it is many people talking to many people is how we end up learning about the news. Our schools are set up in a one-to-many relationship in which the teacher still is very much standing at the front of the, the classroom, um, dispersing information out to many. So we still have very much a broadcast mode. As soon as we shift, to many to many and make that a more horizontal, but still with the, with the adults um, in a very important role, then that allows the adults to curate, to mentor, to guide learning. But can has, and I've seen this in uh, classrooms where we've been doing a lot of work, can relieve the teacher of extraordinary burdens. And I'll just give you one example. Once, uh, in the same way that you saw in Immersi, kids doing extraordinary work, once you teach kids, and lots of teachers do this, and they do it extraordinarily well, um, but you can just do it at scale online uh, in great ways. Once you teach kids how to provide feedback um, and, pr and provide them with rubrics around production and participation, kids can, can grade and give other kids feedback. And once you move, if, if, we, if we ever move from uh, all, grades being all of one age and make them cross-age, which is what we see online and is incredibly powerful, and have peer mentoring and peer mentors being able to provide feedback, then the teacher is relieved of the burden of constantly having to grade 
which we know takes up an enormous amount of time for teachers and would allow them to be to put themselves in a different role than having to spend all of their time providing feedback. And so if we can shift to a guided many-to-many, -many, then we can begin to create a different kind of relationship that allows the adult or the teacher to do in many respects what I've seen from my eight years of teacher prep, to allow them to do uh, the things that uh, I've seen teachers love to do, which is actually to teach, um, as opposed to having to do a, a lot of the um, other things that have to happen in a classroom. There was an interesting discussion. Um, I actually think I actually think many to many can be guided. Um, I think we have to understand uh, where are the scaffolds and how we create the context in which many to many happens. Um, so it doesn't have to be uh, the completely open many to many that we see in journalism or on Twitter. I think there are ways in which we can design social networks. Um, and the ways in which, uh, and we've got folks who are uh, experimenting with that. We do not have a social network that exists right now uh, that supports interest-driven learning. So I think that, that there are lots of ways in which if we take our design principles and really think about how we want to design these interactions, um, I think that we've got, I think we're in transition, but I think we've got huge opportunity. Sorry if I'm rambling, guys. Connie, one of the things, I'm in uh, Park City, Utah this year, and it's been interesting to be in Utah yep. because they have these immersive language schools. And um, mm -hmm. the immersive language programs bring an enormous number of, sort of proactive pedagogical principles to the school where there's mm -hmm. consensus around the value of the immersive language program without having to debate the pedagogical principles. Uh, we heard mm -hmm. yesterday a uh, comment about multi-age classrooms do a really good job of shifting from grading toward achievement levels. So, mm -hmm. um, have you seen so so multi-age um, schooling or immersive language? Are there other uh, sort of bridge concepts that help um, move that cultural dialogue toward more consensus, like those those two principles? Yeah, um, and this, this notion of bridging, I think, is just incredibly important. Um, I think those are the two that are out there. Uh, we're just beginning work to try to think about it from a curricular perspective, um, as well as, uh, frankly, from an assessment perspective. So we even think about, and we hope that we have some examples coming out of our competition, we actually think about uh, the badges and the approach to badges as a bridge. So uh, we like to think of the badges as providing scaffolds that would allow um, learners, whether they're adults or kids, to be able to see a transparent pathway and to collaborate, if it's collaboratively or within a community, to be able to move along a pathway uh, and to uh, be learning as they go, and for badges simply to be feedback along that pathway. Um, and so the badges can then be integrated into communities. So we see uh, those kinds of immersive, uh, not age-dependent learning happening online, um, less so in face-to-face -face unless it's in a place like the media. So if there's somebody who's put a note on the whiteboard or in the chat 
and you'd like to expand on it, uh, we'd love to have somebody grab the microphone and actually talk. You don't, you're not required to do so. But if there was something that came up here that really was engaging for you and you'd like to talk to Connie about it, please feel free to raise your hand and we'll give you the microphone. I'm reading some of the comments. So Lisa, thank you. You have audio permissions. Click on the talk button toward the top left below Connie's image and you should be able to turn your mic on. Hello? Okay, so we can see your mic is on, but we're not getting audio, and that may be a configuration issue. Whoop, whoop. Yeah. I appreciate the line right. that says rambling <laughs> is a sign of a creative mind, by the way. Lisa, uh, there's a microphone with a star at the top. Uh, if you would like to talk, just click on that, and it will help you configure your microphone. You do have to turn your mic off to run that configuration, though. Lisa says her mic appears not to be working. Thomas, you can give it a try. I've given you mic privileges. Hey, uh, Connie. So, Hi, is Thomas. the um, MacArthur Foundation going to be um, funding uh, projects to? try to encourage uh, some of these innovative ways of doing professional development among teachers and, and others? We are just starting to think about it. So we have uh, really wanted to uh, spend our time thinking hard about learning and really uh, understanding the role of digital media in learning and not uh, jump too far ahead. Uh, and we've really wanted to experiment with institutional change. Um, and I think uh, it, it's time for us to, to, to move uh, more assertively into thinking about the connection to schools and the role of the adults and teachers in that space. So we're just um, starting to think about that. And we would, and uh, so one of the ways uh, that we think about it, uh, Thomas, is really how to connect the uh, informal spaces with school spaces. Because we uh, want, um, we think that, and, and again, if folks, uh, if folks want to give feedback on this idea, please do. We think it's important to provide uh, spaces for innovation outside of the classroom for experimentation. Uh, and so we've been building networks outside of schools that really can uh, be networked and, and uh, provide the foundation and easy access for lots of experimentation to happen that could then, uh, once it appears to be promising, could then move more easily back into the school. But we really want to take the pressure off of uh, and the, the risk off of uh, educators who want to hang around, mess around, uh, be innovative, and, and play a little bit with what they've been doing, and also provide them with access to folks who might be doing things differently in their own context and see what that mashup might do. And so in Chicago and New York, we have these things called Hive Learning Networks. Uh, we have 50 organizations in uh, New York that are all participating in a network, and we have 30 in Chicago. And the idea is to really then start connecting schools to these networks and creating safe spaces for educators to begin to, 
to have the space and the, and the resources and like-minded folks to begin to interact with. Connie Renee uh, says her mic isn't working, but she'd like you to speak more about the idea of blended learning spaces and how those could or should be coordinated by teachers as a part of the new role for educators. Yeah, I um, and I'd love to hear from uh, folks on the chat about blended learning spaces. I'm a little confused uh, by really what's meant by blended learning. Um, generally, uh, the questions that I hear related to blended learning, and when I see a blended learning class, it is uh, this sort of bifurcation of uh, uh, students being online doing online classes, and then a student not being online, being with a teacher and, and other students. Um, so it's not clear to me that uh, the question at hand is really about reimagining pedagogy. Uh, I'm not quite sure what's being blended in that context, and I'm not sure that the blended learning is pushing to that next level of integration and reimagination. So I actually need a little help understanding, um, and when I talk to other funders and researchers, I, the questions that I hear are much more about how much time should a kid be online versus how much time should they be with a teacher. Um, and again, those, those usage questions often strike me as uh, coming uh, not quite the right question. Um, just as when we started our work, we didn't want to know how many hours a day a kid was spending online. We wanted to know much more about what they were doing. So I actually need more help understanding uh, how blended learning is going to get to a reimagined understanding of learning as opposed to what I have seen so far as a, sort of a, these separated spaces. And I, I may be totally uh, misunderstanding uh, where that conversation is, but I, I worry about it. Connie, there are a lot of teacher-created sort of grassroots activities, uh, especially in the last four or five years. Uh, which of those have you been watching that you really like? Um, maybe online communities or unconference activities. Yep. Are, are there some of those you're looking at and saying, oh, these could be kind of clues to what we want to get to? Yep. Um, I love the unconference activities, and I've been following those, and I love the EdCamp. Uh, work. I love what's happening at uh, Chris, Chris's school with the Philadelphia school. I think that's extraordinary. Um, I am a huge fan of uh, things like the National Writing Project, because uh, while I think the National Writing Project uh, gives a, some structure, I think there's just extraordinary work coming out from the individual, uh, the local writing projects. Uh, that are just driven organically uh, by those folks. I actually think the National Writing Project is, in the, to use a technology term, I actually think it is uh, one of the largest uh, open source education communities uh, that exists even uh, without technology. Um, so they're one of the groups that I think is just extraordinary. Um, and I think that there are, there's an emerging whole set of folks around STEM um, that are popping up and doing, uh, and uh, that are doing really great things um, and being uh, much more creative, whether it's around the coding work that's been going on. There's a lot of fun stuff that's been going on related to coding 
um, and a lot of folks are doing really great stuff with things like Scratch, um, both in libraries and in schools, uh, and are being quite creative with, with a, a whole set of things that I think are just extraordinary. So we've got about five minutes left. If you wanted to talk to Connie or ask a question, or if we've missed a question, please feel free to repost it in the chat. Uh, Lisa asks, Lisa Schmucki from EdWeb asks, uh, Connie, have you looked at what we're doing at EdWeb? <laughs> um, have you looked at EdWeb? Um, not recently. I'm happy to, after this to go look at it. Is there something in specific you want me to look at? It looks like uh, Lisa's pointing to a specific project uh, there. And Lisa, I'll let you connect directly here with Connie. Okay. Yeah, just send me some links. That would be great. If you want to save this session, including this whiteboard and Connie's presentation, you can go up to File, Save, and you can save the whiteboard. Be sure to save it as a PDF and not in the proprietary whiteboard format. Uh, this recording will also be posted, and you can watch the whole thing again. And you can also download the slides from that recording, so you haven't missed anything. And if you want to save the chat, do the same. Uh, go through the same process. Go to File, Save, and Save the Chat. Honey, hmm. you filled 90 minutes. Amazing. I have loved following the chat, and I love the whiteboard. So thank you all uh, for hanging in there with me and being part of the conversation. It's been great. Really <laughs> I don't think it. we're going to do 90 more no. now. <laughs> thank you, though. And I, uh, I will be watching and participating uh, the re for the rest of uh, in the chats and the other activities for Connected Educator Month. I think it's terrific. So, Steve, again, thank you so much for including me. This has been terrific. Sounds like maybe we should wrap up. Yeah, and these are uh, thanks for putting that up. These are some of our links if folks are looking for more information on a variety of different things. Okay, Connie, I'm clapping for you. I do so by going down to the smiley face and hitting the applause button. I took lots of notes. Really a delightful session for me. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care, everyone. Okay, folks, don't forget uh, ConnectedEducatorMonth.org for all of the other activities. Um, I'm going to go ahead and uh, close this session out. I'll do so by turning off the recording and then uh, booting you out of the room so that the recording will process. To leave the room, you just click on the X at the top right of your screen or go to File and Exit. Thanks, everybody, for coming. Thanks again to Connie. That was terrific.